Good morning, Trinity Church. <laughs> oh, it's good to be here with you this morning. Hey, as Jeremy and Sarah were sharing with us about what God is doing, my heart just leapt with the realities of God's power to do things among his people. And I know that there are stories here at Trinity of what God is doing in your life. And as uh, we've been thinking about that, we thought we want you to have an opportunity to share your stories of God's goodness, his work in your life, his power in different ways. So in the next several weeks, you're going to see out on the uh, pavilion a, a spot that is being designed by Camille and her husband where you can go and write on a 3 by 5 card what God has done in your life this week and just post it up there so that we can all share together. And when you post it, we have a ship's bell right there, and we'd love you to ring it, all right? <laughs> So that everybody can say, wow, God did something great in the life of a person this week. So I hope you take advantage of it. Be thinking. As parents, talk with your kids. What has God done in our lives this week? How have we seen him at work? And then come on Sunday, write the note out. We're going to try to um, uh, memorialize those in some way. Uh, and then just ring the bell. You don't have to spend 10 minutes ringing that thing, you know. But one or two good strokes... And it just says to all of us, God is at work. So I hope you'll take advantage of that. Hey, this morning we are uh, getting toward the end of 1 John. Uh, so we're in 1 John 5. If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, would you open them to 1 John 5? We're only in the first five verses this morning. But as we get into this uh, passage, uh, I wanted to take just a moment or two to talk about uh, fruitcake. <laughs> now, the thing about fruitcake... <laughs> is that you either love it or loathe it, right? So I thought, this will not divide us, by the way. How many of you love fruitcake? Oh, my goodness. Now, what happened over here? It's like there's no fruit, no, there's one or two hands up. Okay. How many of you loathe fruitcake, right? How many don't know? Do you guys know what fruitcake is? Okay, all right. Just the <laughs> yeah, it only comes out during certain seasons, right? And I actually went online this week to Amazon and, and looked for a fruitcake, and I found this gal back in the East Coast who makes them and ships them. I thought, this would be great. I'll have one up here. It got to Loma Linda, and Amazon sends me the notice, your delivery has been delayed, right? <laughs> Loma Linda. It was at 4.30 in the morning. It arrives there. 3 o'clock in the afternoon, your delivery is still delayed. So guess what? We just put the slide up here for you. There is no fruitcake to share afterwards. <laughs> I know. But one of the things that you have to admire about fruitcake is its ability to last forever, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, there's a, story, there's a story here, okay? Some of you may have read this. I came across it again this week as I was doing some thinking about the sermon. But the fruitcake's density, right, its rum flavoring, its high sugar content, gives it a durability that lasts for a long time. This is a picture of Fidelia Ford. Now, she lived in Michigan back in the 1860s, 70s, and uh, every year she would make a fruitcake for her family. But they wouldn't serve it that Christmas. She would let it soak for an entire year. So every Christmas they would eat last year's fruitcake that was made, you know, soaking in that rum flavoring the whole year, and it was just incredible. She was well known for her fruitcakes. Well, she died at the age of 65. She had just made her last fruitcake for the following year. So that next year, the family brought it out, and they said, we can't eat this. We're going to keep it in memory of her. And that was 145 years ago. <laughs> That's it right there. 
She was known as a woman who would serve anybody in any way. She was known as a servant of others. And so they said, we're going to commemorate every year with the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. In fact, you don't see the cover here, but her story, her testimony is on top, written out for anybody who wants to read it, of how she cared for others. In fact, uh, the husband, uh, her great-great-grandson, I think it was, was on uh, the Jay Leno show back when Jay was, you know, nightlight stuff. And, uh, And Jay said, can we taste it? Well, sure, let's have a taste. And so you'll notice, if we can put the slide back up there, you can actually see that there's a section right in the front here where they both took a taste. And uh, somebody said to Jay, so what do you think? He goes, I think it needs to age a little bit longer. You know, <laughs> it was just kind of crusty. Now, why are we talking about fruitcakes? Well, there are three things about Fidelia's story that I want to uh, not let us miss. The first is... Her family intentionally decided to preserve this as a part of their family heritage because it came from Fidelia, because it reminded them of her life and the way that she served others. So that was one thing. The second thing is it was able to last so long because of what it was made of. It was durable and delightful. And the third thing is it helps us get introduced to what John is talking about today in 1 John 5. Now, throughout the book, John has been describing about this whole idea of fellowship, koinonia, agape love, and and this love that um, God has given us for each other, and it comes from his recipe, God's recipe for close and sacrificial and loving relationships with God and with each other. And and so, as we take a look at this passage this morning, I want to really key in on that whole idea of sacrificial love, fellowship, and how the ingredients are designed to help us truly love God and make a difference in this world. Now, 1 John only has 57 verses, but he uses the word agape love 80 times in this short book. That's one and a half times every verse. So you get the feeling like this is a big deal for John. It's something we have to understand. And up until now, in the first four chapters, John has been saying to us there are three key ingredients to what goes into this kind of love for God and others. And he said, number one, it's being born again. And we'll talk about that a little bit this morning because he references it again in 1 John 5. Being born again. Secondly, continuing to believe in Jesus. Not just walking away from the faith after a period of time. And thirdly, loving God and each other. So those are the ingredients that he's embedded in the first four chapters. And now he comes to chapter 5 and he adds two more things. And he says, I want you to also understand that there is going to be the need for obedience to the commands of God and to overcome the world. So these first three things really pile into the last two. And what I want to do for us today is put this verse, this section, on our screen. And I've colorized a couple portions of it so that you can see some of the interplay between this. So let's read this together, and then I want to come back and look at the different colors. This is the uh, ESV. Let's read together. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and we obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 
Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So the very first thing that happens in a believer's life is new birth. So if you look up at the screen at the brown portions, and notice how you have it at the beginning and about almost at the end. Verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And then if you go down a little further to verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And it's almost like these are bracketed expressions of this idea so that we don't forget it, so that it really gets rubbed into our thinking. And it's interesting that John says here, when we believe that Jesus is the Christ, and this is in the present tense, so it, you could even say, when we are believing, present tense, that Jesus is the Christ, it's because God did something first in our souls, that is, he created new life in us. Now, the verbs tell us that because when it, it comes to this idea of being born again, it's the past perfect tense. It happened in the past, but there's this ongoing result, right? So we, we were born again of God, but the result is we are believing in God. So it's kind of like seeing someone riding a bike down the street, and you say to yourself, I know at somewhere, sometime in the past, they got on the bike. That past tense perfect of mounting the bike is being the born again, and the riding of it is the believing. So it's very interesting for us because he says, who is it that overcomes the world? How do we resist the pressures and persuasions of the world around us? Well, it says, except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, the one who has been born and believes. And it's because we've been given this new life by God. So everything that is good in our lives starts with new birth. Everything with God's new DNA, being born into his family. Now, take a look at the blue in the passage, if we can put that back up there. The blue is the pinnacle of the Christian life. This is love for God. You see it in verse 3. Right in the middle of his whole section, this is love for God. Let's go to the uh, mountaintop for a moment. So here's kind of how John lays it out for us. He says, at the base of the mountain of the Christian experience, there is the being born again. There is that new life experience that occurs in our souls by the grace and mercy of God, no effort of our own, and then it begins to flow out into over, uh, ongoing belief in Jesus as the Christ, loving God and his children, keeping God's commands, overcoming the world. All of that leads to this beautiful idea that this is love for God. All of these things. You notice the first two actions there are very familiar for us, aren't they? We, we know about being born again. The Holy Spirit enters us. He brings about an enduring belief in Jesus as the Son of God, as the Christ, and that ongoing belief in Jesus. The Holy Spirit enables us to believe and then to love God and others. This is very foundational, shouldn't be new to us. But what we have not thought about much in 1 John are these other two, keeping God's commands and overcoming the world's pressures and persuasions around us. And I think we would all agree that in our world today, because there is no absolute truth, it is becoming increasingly difficult for Christians to know what is the command of God, that it is truth, 
and how to obey it, and then to overcome the world with all of its push and shove against Christianity. John says it's a very natural progression. It begins with these earlier ingredients, if you will, in the Christian life, and it moves toward the last two and ultimately loving God. So what I'd like to do with you this morning is just walk through those things. Uh, if you have your uh, sermon outline, you'll see them on the sheet in front of you. If you want to go onto the web, you can take a look at them there. But let's start with number one. Loving God begins with new birth and belief. We see that in verses one and five. He says, everyone who believes, present tense, that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one that God has sent, the God-man, if you believe that, you have been born of God at some point in the past. Who is it that overcomes, present tense, the world? Except that one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So your and my belief that Jesus is God, that promised Messiah, the anointed one, that's literally what Christos or Christ means, is the anointed one from the Old Testament, that is not a natural thought. It's not a logical, personal conviction. None of us woke up one day and said to ourselves, uh, you know, today I believe uh, that God the Son became a man and that he died for my sins and the sins of humanity to bring me into a relationship with God. None of us ever had that thought, naturally, because we are bent in the opposite direction in our brokenness as human beings. In fact, the Word of God tells us that we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. In other words, we're insentient. We're uh, expired, lifeless, perished, pushing up daisies, so to speak, in our spiritual world. There is no life there. And as spiritual cadavers, cadavers we had no thoughts of God at all. No accurate thoughts, at least. Listen to Ephesians 2.19 and following. It says, And you were dead in our trespasses and sins, in whence we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, and listen to this next phrase. It's a very familiar one from Ephesians 2. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Now, in your mind, did you add through faith? Had you already gotten that far down? Okay, it's not, not yet. Paul, in writing this, doesn't get to that yet. That's verses 8 and 9. But back here in verse 5, he says, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Period. That's the born-again moment. It's not because of anything that we believed or thought. Verse 6, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And here's what you were thinking of, these verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Ah, that finally comes in. My part. But the new birth has already happened. God brings this belief about. He says, this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. 
For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jesus had a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. We're all familiar with his story pretty much. We find it in John chapter 3. We have John 3.16, right? But I want to rehearse it for you a little bit this morning because there's a key part of it at the very end we don't talk about a lot. So let's put this up on the screen. Let me read it for you. This is John 3, 3 through 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for nobody can do these signs that you're doing unless God is with him. And Jesus answers him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And you notice he doesn't say there, believe. He says, unless you are born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, and theologians tend to say the breaking of a woman's water at childbirth and the breaking out of the spirit of God in spiritual birth, Unless you have been born of water and the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. You've got to be a human being. You've got to be a new creature in Christ. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I've said to you, you must be born again. And this is the verse we miss right here, verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, we have all kinds of meteorological stuff today that we go, well, we know where the wind comes from and where it goes. But in Jesus' day, you could feel the wind, you could see the effect of the wind, but you didn't have a sense of where did this get created and where is it ending up. And he says, so it is with the Spirit of God. Now, we, I think, as intelligent thinking Christians want to figure this out. We want to piece this out. And we want to say, well, you know, it just seems very clear to me that, you know, there's this belief and then I'm born again, right? But the scriptures flip it. And they say, no, you have to be born again. It's this mysterious thing that God does in your soul where you, you realize, like Jeremy, the gal that he was talking about, said, your message was too much for me. God was at work in her soul. And then after that, she came to a point of belief. So there's this mystery of how God works, but it can seem backwards to us, right? It can seem like, well, I know I believed, and then I thought I was born again. John says, no, it doesn't work that way. Everyone who believes present tense has been born of God. John MacArthur puts it this way. He says the tenses of the verbs in 1 John 5.1 reveal a significant theological truth. Believes translates a present tense form of the verb. Whereas has been born is in the perfect past tense. The point is that contrary to Arminian theology, continual faith is the result of the new birth, not its cause. Christians do not keep themselves born again by believing and lose their salvation if they stop believing. On the contrary, it is their perseverance in the faith that gives evidence that they have been born again. The faith that God grants in regeneration, Ephesians 2.8, we just looked at that, is permanent. It can't be lost. 
nor, as some teach, can it die, for dead faith does not save, James says in James 2. There is no such thing as an unbelieving believer. You see his point? John takes a moment right at the very beginning of this chapter, and he says it is critically important for us to understand that being born again leads to believing in God, leads to loving God and each other, which leads to obeying God's commands, which leads to overcoming our world's way of thinking, its practices, its uh, values, its way of life. And it can't be done on our own. This is why God starts with being born again, because we cannot do this. It requires the power of the Holy Spirit. So folks, if we are struggling, or we know someone who is struggling in their faith, or we are struggling ourselves, or we know someone who is lacking in love for God or for other Christians, or failing to obey the commands of God, or not overcoming the world, they're caving into the world's pressures and the world's persuasions, then the need is not for us to work harder as a Christian. The need is for us to be more controlled by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 nails it. Listen to Paul. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, and such were some of you. I love that phrase right there. Such were some of you. He says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Does that make sense? That God says to us, loving God, the pinnacle of the Christian experience, begins with being born again, which results in belief. John goes on to say in the second part of verse 1, he says, loving God involves loving God's family. Parents, you know the old saying, love me, love my kids, right? That's what God is telling us here. He says, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. If we love God, we're going to love his kids, even the ones who seem unlovable at times. I don't know about you guys, but my mom and dad did not give me a choice of my siblings. <laughs> right? <laughs> they never said, how many brothers or sisters would you like? They decided that. We wanted six. Do you want to be the oldest, the middle, or the youngest? And I was kind of in the middle of the pack. Do you want a brother who's your best friend or your best enemy? And with three brothers, I had one of each every day. <laughs> right? I grew up having three brothers and two sisters, and I had to learn to live with them, and they had to learn to live with me, which was sometimes harder than living with them. Folks, take a look around this morning at the people close to you. Just take a look around. This is your family. This is who God picked to be in your family. And you may look around and you go, well, I, I like that, I don't like that. Oh, I like that. Mm. You know, we tend to do that. But God didn't give us a choice. He chose who would come into the family. Think of the disciples of Jesus. You've got a tax collector and a zealot. If you watch the Chosen series, Jesus took the tax collector and the zealot who opposed Rome, put them together and said, go minister. He's like, can we do that? 
God picks us for his family. And then he says, I want you to love each other because you love me. So do we know each other? Do we appreciate each other? Do we care for each other? Do we even like each other, right? John comes back here and he says, here is where agape love is shown. You guys remember the definition from last week of agape love? This is not a test or a quiz. It is a rhetorical question. You're going, thank God. Sacrificially meeting the needs of others without charge. Expecting nothing in return. I just want to bless you. I want to help you, encourage you. That's what he's talking about here. So we have to say to ourselves, how do I know if I'm doing a good job at that? Well, look at verses 2 and 3. He tells us. Loving God, number 3, requires obedience to God's commands. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God. There's the pinnacle. This is what this is all about. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. This part starts off by this, we know. So we have to ask the question, well, what? By what? What are you referring to? What's the by this? And John says it's two things. First of all, it's by our love for God. When we love God, we will love his kids. Second, it's by obeying his commandments. For we know, by, for by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. That is how you know if you're doing a good job of loving each other. You're loving God and obeying his commandments. And so we have to ask ourselves, am I, am you, are you loving God and am I, are you obeying his commandments? I like what John Piper says about this. He says, every encounter with each of the more 1,600 New Testament commands. Did you guys know there were that many commands in the New Testament? The Jews only had 634. We get 1,600. And this is why people came to Jesus and said, what is, what's the greatest commandment? Which of those? And notice what John goes on to say. Each encounter with each of the more than 1,600 New Testament commands is an opportunity to jettison self-reliance and to yield to the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Supernatural commands from a supernatural God can only be carried out with reliance on his supernatural power. That makes sense, doesn't it? The Spirit is called the helper, but don't let his name mislead you. To say that we need his help is to imply that we have some ability of our own to obey and are are in need of just a little spiritual push, so to speak. It is better to say that we need him to enable us to obey divine commands. For the word enable indicates that without his power, we cannot obey. So folks, it is by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit that we are able to love God and we're able to keep his commands. And the work of keeping them is not just acting on them or obeying them. There's two words here. He says we are to obey the commands, but we are also to keep the commands. So what's the difference? Well, one is the action, the other is the emotion. The word keep here is uh, tereo. We get our word terrarium from it. And it's the idea of attending to something carefully, to keep our eyes focused on, to take care with, to observe and watch carefully, to pay close attention to, to keep a jealous safeguarding of something. 
Lisa and I witnessed this a number of years ago when uh, one of our daughters had a favorite stuffed animal. Uh, it was named Blue Bear. Right? Blue Bear. There you go. This is Blue Bear number four. <laughs> she wore out the other bears because she loved it so much. And this one even is wearing out. You can see if you were to look closely, the neck has been restitched several times because of just hanging on to Blue Bear. But there was one particular day we were down in San Clemente. We were driving on PCH, which if you're from California, you know it's Pacific Coast Highway, going from San Clemente to Dana Point. And my daughter was sitting right behind me in her car seat, and she had Blue Bear up there like this, and she was talking to Blue Bear. And then at one point as we were driving along this four-lane road, she rolls the window down, and she wants Blue Bear to see the ocean. And suddenly the wind caught it. And it went flying <laughs> to the line in the middle of the road. Yeah. And she goes, oh, Blue Bear's gone. And my wife turned around and looked. She goes, honey, we got to go back. I said, okay. So I did a 180, and I'm driving back toward Blue Bear. And there she is lying in the middle of the road. And I'm realizing I can't just stop, open the door, get out, walk over, pick up Blue Bear, come back in, close the door. There you go, honey. There was no way I could do that. So I'm driving along, one hand on the steering wheel, one hand on the door. And as I got closer, I'm slowing down, slowing down. And as I got there, I just uh, uh, picked it up. Yeah. Dad of the Year Award, right? I'm thinking to myself, whoa, who does that kind of thing? Gave the bear back to our daughter. My wife turns to her and says, honey, what do you say? And she goes, oh, Blue Bear, I'm so sorry. <laughs> she was right. That's exactly what she should have said, right? Because she had this affection for Blue Bear, this keeping, safeguarding jealousy for Blue Bear. And I tell you that story because that is what God wants for you and I with his commands. He wants us to keep his commands, to love his commands, to cherish them, to hold on to them. And the moment we feel them slipping away, to cry out an alarm for help. These have been made in our family by Lisa's mom and by Lisa for every single child born into our family. And they all get the same kind of love, but it all began with pastor's wife bear. <laughs> right? So when we became engaged, Lisa had that that she had from a child, but guess what? I got pastor bear. <laughs> And this went to seminary with me. Notice the vest. They used to have a tie on there, you know. And there were some nights when I was missing Lisa, and guess what? It kept me company. So, keeping the commands of God, cherishing them, treasuring them, keeping our eyes on them, watching them carefully, is the starting point to obedience. Excuse me, Blue Bear, we'll put you back up here. Why does God want us to feel that way about his commands? Well, he says, first of all, they always lead to love for others. God is love. 
And if we're going to love him, we have to love our kids, it says. And so the commands of God are designed to compel us, to propel us toward each other in love. Let me give you a few examples from Scripture. They're very short passages. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12.16, live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty or proud, but associate with the lowly. Romans 14.13, let us not pass judgment on one another. Romans 15.7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another, build one another up. That's one of my favorite passages. I love the idea of encouragement. In fact, Paul says, when you speak with each other, do not speak anything except to encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day of Christ drawing near. And then lastly, James 5.9, don't grumble against one another. Folks, those are just eight of 30-plus one another commands out of the 1,600. And so these commands of God are designed to compel us toward love for each other. And this is why we're to treasure them and live by them. How would you feel if these eight simple commands were followed faithfully at church? If you felt the impact of these eight things in your life, Folks, do you know if that happened, if every Christian acted this way in every church around the world, we would have to add more chairs and services for the people who are hungering for that kind of life. And God gave it to us. Amen. Notice he says in this passage, God's commands are not burdensome to us. This is what the world would have us think. Oh man, obeying God is such a hard thing. It's so difficult. How could you ever try to do that kind of thing? And God says, no, they're not burdensome. They're not. They are burden lifters. Romans 13, 8 says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Isn't that a beautiful statement? For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet. Whatever other commandment there may be, 1,600, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul writes, love does no harm to its neighbors. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Number four, verse four. John says, loving God results in overcoming the world. Listen to him. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith we have to realize that every christian when you were born as a christian you were born on a battlefield think of ukraine pregnant women who give birth in the midst of this conflict and god says there is a need for victory there is a need to overcome there is a battle going on here and it's not just a political fight I wish we could get past all of the rhetoric about that. It's not a political fight. It's not a social media fight between Twitter and Thread. It's, it's not even an actual global warfare. It is this supernatural battle. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, powers and rulers in places of darkness. So God says, I want you to overcome in the battle. I want you to Nike. Did you know that's the Greek word for victory? Nike? Interesting that that would be chosen for sportswear. 
He says, I want you to Nike in the battle. And your victories are ultimately tied into the new birth experience. But this is not a victory we can win on our own. It be, requires being born of God, having his DNA within us, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And folks, when we live by his power, it is impossible to lose because the divine nature will never disobey God. And God indwells us. So how do we gain this victory? How do we overcome the world's pressures and persuasions? Look again at verse 4. This is the victory that overcomes the world, your faith. And the word overcomes there is in the Greek past tense. Something happened in the past that overcame the world's system. And our faith in that past thing is what gives us the victory. What would be the thing in the past that would give us the victory? What was the overcoming in the past that gives us the victory today? Well, it's the person of Christ on the cross, defeating sin, death, the world, sin nature. And the word faith here talks to us about this reality. So we overcome the world system by clinging to eternal realities. All right? God's sacrificial love for us meets our greatest need. The reality of the incarnation, the reality of the new life that results in the life of Christ within us. And I love the fact that overcomers are not a special spiritual breed. It's not the green beret of Christianity. It's not the Navy SEAL of Christianity. Oh, it's just a few who can overcome. No, he says, every person who, who is born of God is naturally this overcomer when they express their faith in the past victory of Jesus. Let me begin to wrap this up for us. There was one commentator who put it this way. Faith is not saying that what God says is true. Faith is acting on what God says because it is true. Faith is not so much believing in spite of evidence, it's obeying in spite of apparent consequences. So your faith and my faith is only as strong as the indwelling power of the Spirit, the new birth, our love for God, and His Word. So how do we develop that? Let me give you four things. Very simply, and with this, we'll move to the last part of what we want to do this morning. Number one, make sure you've been born again. You need to be converted. If you're trying to live the Christian life by your own bootstraps, your own efforts, your own, I can do this, I just need to work harder at my Christian faith. God says, no, 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 no. That's the world's way of looking at things. You have to have God's new life within you. It has to come through the presence of God. And that's coupled with this idea of faith. They're very closely interconnected. In fact, we as, as human beings have a hard time distinguishing where one stops and where one begins. But we have to be converted. There has to be belief. Secondly, we have to be committed. We have to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Jesus. That's our part of it, but it never replaces God's part of it. Thirdly, we have to commune. So we have to be converted, we have to be committed, we have to commune. We need to dive deeper into the Word of God, to love it, treasure it, value it, hold on to it, blue bear it. And lastly, we need to conquer, overcoming the world with our faith. That is our personal calling from God. And, and honestly, I think it's our corporate calling from God as well, as a church. This is what he commands us to do. Be obedient to his commands, 
and go out and conquer the world's pressures, go out and conquer the world's persuasions.